Hi, my name is Vanessa Leck. Today's video is going to be about congressional complaints and um, how I've how I filed one and congressional complaints in the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and employees and military veterans that have to file congressional complaints. So you, I have a whole playlist dedicated to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and that whole saga that has become so much of my life through the many, many years I've dealt with this organization. It's been become the bane of my existence since I got out of the military, exited the military, and um, whew, just my complete nemesis. And it's literally one problem after another. And, you know, I'm optimistic. I've tried through the years to be an optimistic, really hopeful person, definitely goal-oriented, that's for sure. But, you know, I, I just have come, unfortunately, to the conclusion over the last number of years that there's nothing really to be optimistic about with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. And this whole video series is really going to illustrate why and what needs to be done to change it. No veteran it was just a little bit about me. It's just that um, you can watch my other vet videos to learn more. Subscribe to YouTube channel. Like I have a podcast it is distributed every single place. Podcast possibly be found in America <laughs> to listen to. So just watch that. Um, but you know, no one should have to file a congressional complaint or inquiry of any kind slash inquiry of any kind in order to communicate or to work for or to deal with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. But unfortunately, people do all the time. It's so bad, in fact, that when I worked at the VA, I recall the first place I interned at, they actually had an entire office <laughs> and a person paid whose full-time job it was to deal with congressional inquiries and congressional complaints against the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs from various people to include but not limited to veterans, military veterans that were upset about you freaking name it. And, and so I don't know what the nature of all those complaints were, obviously, but in my experience from me personally, like my, professionally, you know, when I worked at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs um, many years ago, I quit in the winter of 2015 due to whistleblower retaliation that was unending and relentless and turned my life upside down, literally. And that was its intended effect. And it was very successful in doing it. And that's what they do to people that are honest, that work inside the organization, that report issues. I went public with those issues several years ago to the media. I wish I would have said yes to every reporter that wanted to work with me. But it was just a lot. And I just want to get away from the drama. <clears throat> and so I did. I quit the job. And I just got the heck out of there. Um, and then I used the legal process, which I'm going to speak a lot about in other videos slash podcasts, um, in order to try to afford that. I didn't have a JD degree, which is a law degree. I still don't, but I want to get one. And, you know, there, that's a whole saga in and of itself. Had I had one, things would have turned out better and differently because I would have taken it to open public court for all of the world to see the truth. Um, and, and it would have all been public, but instead I did the route of the, um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and the Merit System Protection Board and uh, Office Special Counsel and all that just proved to be a massive waste of time. I mean, documents came out of some of it. I mean, yeah, some of it, two of the three things, um, which, you know, exposed even more of the truth that I already knew. Um, but the reality is, is, you know, when I worked there, I did file a congressional complaints um, and it did reveal information confirming, you know, different allegations that I had made and confirmed that they had been substantiated in part. And I still have that documentation. Um, I have a box full of documents and a hard drive full of um, documents as well. And so 
you know, no one should have to have an employer that they have to file congressional complaints against or inquiries. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I know it's the government and all, but like no one should have to work at a place where like filing a congressional inquiry is even necessary. Like that's outrageous. It's outrageous that anything should be so mismanaged and self-serving or corrupt or whatever you want to call it, that that even happens. You know, my experience with this organization is that there's a lot of cruelty towards military veterans and the people are trying to serve them. That's been my direct experience. And I've been experiencing this for years and years and years now. And like, it's just, it's like a really, it's a really bad organization. And I wish I could say better of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, but I can't. And there are good people that work there, mostly in subordinate positions is the conclusion I've come to. And there's a lot of turnover in those positions because of the way people are being treated throughout the organization. My experience was not an isolated incident. You know, I unfortunately saw on the news during my employment towards the end when I knew I, it was, I wasn't going to be staying with the organization that my story was widespread and it was really commonplace. And it was, it was just ubiquitous. It was all, it was everywhere. It was all over. It wasn't one facility. It wasn't one region. It was all over. So it's not an uncommon story. And so now as a um, military veteran, oh, and cruel, by the way. I uh, was threatened with this sanction for using that word. Um, I think I put that in a, I'm pretty sure I did an illegal filing and I was threatened with a sanction from the administrative judge for saying that I was cautioned. I was cautioned from using the words like that again. I was cautioned because let's all be cautious of calling out the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs for being corrupt or for being cruel okay, or inhumane towards people. This is an organization that has succeeded in destroying people's lives, turning people's lives upside and down, and getting away with it. Both military veterans and the people who support them that work there that try to do their jobs every day, okay? That's the truth about the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. It's about damn time we start acknowledging it. Now, the news media has done a fantastic job, some of them, of portraying this through the years. But there's not enough people out there with voices willing to be heard. And places like the Equal Opportunity Commission and thanks to Congress's inaction, the Merit System Protection Board, and they're just burying these complaints, okay? They're burying them. That's what's happening. My complaint, I initially filed with the Office of Resolution Management. Actually, I'm going to type up a banner right now to go ahead and spell that out because all these acronyms are so freaking complicated. Office of Resolution Management belongs to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. They belong exclusively to U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, to the best of my knowledge and understanding, unless something has changed, not to other federal agencies. Thank you, Jesus, because other federal agencies do not need to be plagued with the Office of Resolution Management, ORM. The process when I worked there, and I doubt it's much different, but when I worked there, the process was that you were supposed to file a complaint of of the activity that was going on, whatever it was that fell underneath like civil rights law, basically, which can cover many things. Okay. And then it was supposed to be investigated. And this was supposed to be an independent or entity. And that is totally false. That's total BS. Okay. And they're supposed to come in and do an independent objective investigation to deter, not to determine, but to elicit information and facts that would determine ultimately whether or not illegal behavior had occurred that violated the civil rights laws. Okay. Well, that was not my experience. All right. So I filed a complaint. I can't remember. It's been so long ago. 
but it was early on in the employment because so much stuff was going on. It wasn't until right before I quit my job, <laughs> like I was literally out of the department that I'd been working in and detailed off to never, never land <laughs> because the retaliation was so severe. It was just, it was just so wild, the whole situation. And that's when they finally showed up all these months later to investigate. And let me tell you, that investigation was not investigation. It was a freaking cover-up because that's what they do. The Office of Resolution Management, in my direct experience, and yes, I still have the 1,088-page report, which is mostly filled with the policy statements of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, where they say, they paper the whole wall saying, we don't do bad things. We don't engage in illegal behavior. Oh, uh, but they do. Trust me. Okay. Been there, dealt with that. And then they didn't even interview all of the people, the witnesses that they should have interviewed. Okay. I brought this up to the judge during my pre-hearing conference, by the way, which of course isn't recorded because in my opinion, these, the EOC doesn't want you to know what's happening in these um, conferences, these pre-hearing conferences or other meetings. Okay. They don't. That's why there's no court reporter. And then the order that is generated from those conferences, pre-hearing conference I was in, don't accurately reflect 100% of what actually occurred. There's actually people have had full on like meltdowns over at the EOC about this type of stuff. And, and then the judge, you know, in some cases end up like sanctioning them or like taking like <laughs> dismissing their case. Well, I saved everyone the trouble. I dismissed my own case right before the hearing. So I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to show up where to a hearing where I'm not even going to be heard. Like, what's the point? I mean, literally, what is the point? The whole system is rigged. And so almost a year passes. And that was like the entire time I worked there. All these months passed, several months, upwards, you're not here, but several months passed before the Office of Resolution Management even comes in to investigate, aka cover up the investigate, cover up what happened. And and I was literally questioned and I would call it an interrogation because that's exactly what I perceive it as being for almost eight hours about what I reported and what happened. And one day, straight through, no lunch break. I got bathroom breaks, so I did get those and I drank some water. And then I was also at this facility at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs asked another hour worth of questions prior to that about what happened and what I reported. So now we're up to almost nine hours of questioning. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Administrative Judge, like by the time I got to the hearing, which was, okay, so in 2014, I started working there. In 2015 winter, I quit the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs facility. It wasn't until 2021. That's right. You heard that right. I quit my job in the winter of 2015 at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. And then in 2021, they were going to have a hearing at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission about that. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. I actually talked to a lawyer recently, this year, I think it was. Yeah, it was this year, who was telling me, I talked to several lawyers, who told me that their cases at the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, I'll go ahead and put that up real quick because I know it's probably like not really just quite a lot that their cases were taking an average of five to seven years to resolve. And many of those cases were losing because civil rights cases in general are very hard cases to win 
with regard to American workers trying to protect their civil rights in America's workplaces. That is the reality of it. And I'm doing a whole series right now on this topic um, called Did You Know? It was filmed with my phone camera, um, video camera, many months ago. And I was waiting until after the hearing to release information, the hearing that I would never end up even going to. Anyways, so 2021 happens, you know, and the case becomes alive in the late 2020. I was on a hamster legal wheel doing all this legal work myself. You know, it was just anyways. And so then um, after I dismissed my own case, I filed a motion to dismiss my own case. By the way, the only motion to the best of my recollection that was actually approved by the administrative judge this time. Because I had three judges because they they rotate judges. I learned the EEOC like musical freaking chairs. Okay. So my third judge, that judge, to best of my recollection, unless I'm missing something, which it was such a paperwork fiasco, who knows, um, but to best of my recollection, did not approve any of my motions at all, um, except for the one to dismiss my own case. <laughs> I mean, like, what does that tell you? And then I got this email from the judge who typically doesn't like email. I mean, I got tons of auto messages about that or whatever emails about that from this judge said that, okay, I would already didn't want to have to be questioned again about this during the hearing. I wanted to use the two days that we were supposed to have business days and those hours to go ahead and like question the people involved, which were a lot of people. And, um, and so, no, like my witnesses weren't allowed to testify. Um, the key witnesses, a good number of them, the managers were, you know, one of the witnesses was so scared. They sent an email trying to get out of testifying. The office's general counsel had to, um, you know, tell them, I saw the email, CC'd on it, that, you know, they were, they were legally obligated to testify even if they didn't want to in, um, in EEOC proceedings as a federal employee, which is true. And, you know, um, I got this email though from the judge saying the timetable, because I will be fair and I will say to the Office of General Counsel's credit for OGC, which is legal arm of the VA, they were like, yeah, you know, they submitted a document and it was a timetable that we we're supposed to agree on. It. And it was just basically saying a lot of things. It was saying that we basically don't agree, you know, on this. And, you know, she doesn't want to, she thinks that testifying for this law is excessive and, you know, this is what we want. And that was fair because that was representative of the truth of, you know, we disagreed. Okay. Anyways. And so the judge comes back and this is just like what was happening the whole time. Like <laughs> there was, in my opinion, there's judicial bias. And, um, I think that when you're pro se representing yourself, which is that what that is pro se representing yourself, there's going to be a lot of bias. Um, courtroom five, which is a legal software that I utilized during this time period, actually talked about judicial bias, which I didn't watch their training on that, but judicial bias um, against, you know, pro se litigants. And it was covered in their podcast as well. And I'll link to the courtroom five um, in the description below this video. So you guys can check that out. But, you know, I was going to just talk about congressional complaints, but obviously this is something that's really on my mind because, you know, I went through over five years, maybe six years of hell. And, and it was just, there was no justice and it felt like this cruel joke and the jo everyone was in on it, but me, the cruel joke. And so the day that I dismissed my case, um, you know, I got an email from the judge who hadn't seen the motion to, that I'd filed to dismiss my own case. And it said on a timetable that it had been increased the number of hours this was testified. So I was expected to testify for three hours, three hours. 
I was expected to testify for three hours about what happened after I'd already testified for upwards of nine hours, almost nine hours, not quite, but almost nine hours combined total. On the record, almost eight of those hours were transcribed. There were, there was um, transcripts and they were all accurate because I, I read every single page and I submitted corrections every single page and there were a, a lot of pages. And I was expected to go through three more hours, three more hours of testifying. Keep in mind, one of the higher level executives is what I'll refer to the person as executives involved in the case was only, and I had wanted the person to testify for about an hour because there had a lot of questions that weren't unanswered and weren't in the record because they were never interviewed. Go figure. They were only going to be required by the administrative judge for to testify and for me to be able to ask questions, not the other side, but for me specifically to be able to ask questions for 10 minutes, 10 minutes. That's not what justice or accountability looks like, but that is the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and, and they're enablers. According to Management Directive 110, which I refer to as the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Bible, it says many things, but it makes it very clear that the EEOC's mission is supposed to be to eradicate discrimination in America's, in the federal workplace, okay? Eradicate discrimination in the workplace. And and I was on the federal track of the EEOC is what I will call it, and it's been referred to like that in public you know, as well by others like lawyers. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, don't have a lawyer, law degree, don't have a law background, not a licensed lawyer, not a lawyer, not a lawyer at all. This is not legal advice. Okay. With that said, like, I firmly believe that the EEOC is a taxpayer funded sham and they're not the only ones. I don't think this is any better. I don't think this is any better. Okay. All these things I'm flashing by. I don't think it's any better. The only, the only entity that seems to be getting shit done is this Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. Like they're constantly in the news and I don't think it's propaganda either because they've actually made some serious headway. The um, Office of Inspector General, which belongs to the Veterans Affairs, you know, they have their own. They're the only ones that are making headway. Um, so the US Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General seems to be like really on it, which is kind of crazy, like how on it they are. But even if they worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I still don't think they'd be able to cover up, get get all the the corruption taken care of, you know what I'm saying? Like all the mismanagement and everything, all these facilities nationwide. And, um, you know, that executive I mentioned was going to have to testify 20 minutes, 10 minutes was going to be given to opposing counsel, which was the, um, these people that are flashing on the screen, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Office General Counsel, OGC, their legal arm. And I was only going to get 10 minutes. I was only at 10 minutes. And, um, and that's just not right or fair. And, you know, all the, there were so many people I wanted to have testify that weren't allowed to testify. And I'm going to get to that in different different videos. I wasn't planning to spend this much time on these videos. And, you know, right now, like, I'm recording this and I'm planning on making sure that all of my documents from the, the EOC are on a hard drive just in case. Because, you know, it was just, like, really apparent to me that they, meaning, like, the people, like, that are in power and stuff, like, they don't want this to be out in the open, all this stuff. And um, I believe the reason that I was being strung along for so long inside the facilities because the management didn't want me to publicly talk about what was happening. And I think that they're concerned that I would eventually or it could happen. And the these these 
entities, these government entities like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, yeah, they're underfunded and under-resourced. And I 100% acknowledge that in another video I did. There's no doubt about it. I There's definitely people lobbying against civil rights in America's workplaces and in trying to chip away at the ability to enforce the civil rights. But with that said, like the EOC is much more aggressive from what I've seen at taking on non-governmental civilian companies, which is amazing, versus taking on these federal agencies, in my opinion. And yeah, you may see, and I do see too, an occasional win. And there are wins for people that go through this process, but the large majority are not. And it's not because people are necessarily lying. It's because the way these cases are being handled, yes, civil rights laws are weak. They're like Swiss cheese for American workers, but it's the way these cases are being handled. It's not just, it's not just that there is lying people. And I saw an article written about that and it was just horrifying. It's like, people aren't just making this up. Like, that's not what this is. I mean, do you have the outliers? Sure, but that's not the large majority, I don't believe. And that wasn't my case. And so I was going to be expected for a grand total between the EOC three hours at the hearing and the almost nine hours of the facility for over these five plus years to talk to testify about this for over for about 12 hours time. And, you know, I was treated worse than a criminal. Criminals in America, people that are being charged with crimes, have more rights than people fighting for their civil rights in America's workplaces, especially if they're in a federal workplace, is what I learned. And my civil rights and my legal rights were violated when I worked at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. <clears throat> I was a whistleblower. Those rights were violated. And it's not okay. And it's happening to other people. And it's been happening. And they don't hold people accountable. And I've talked about this in a live stream I did, a live event about how <clears throat> even if you win, it's not really a win because no one's actually held accountable. They're not being terminated from their positions and at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and my understanding elsewhere in these federal agencies. Instead, they're being retained and they're able to wreak havoc in other areas of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and to create new victims and destroy more lives. And that's the truth. And they're doing it all on a taxpayer-funded payroll with benefits in retirement. That's the truth. You know, when you have organizations engaging in this kind of misconduct, it has the ability to turn just people's lives upside down um, in a way that you can't quite imagine. And, um, it's really, it's really brutal and it's really despicable, you know, it's really despicable. And, you know, when you have super emphasized employers, there's communities that where you have families, multiple members, of the same family, you know, um, working for that employer, and so it just really rips away at the fabric of that family and ultimately the community when these things are happening. And they are happening. They are happening. There was a wonderful news article. It was done by the Daily Caller many years ago. And it showed an interactive U.S. map where it showed managers, Chris, not just managers, forgive me, managers and other types of employees where they've been accused of different things or whatever, or, you know, and they're being tracked. They literally had crisscrossed all across the country, all these different people and had all these different lines, you know, and, and that's the reality. And that just enables 
serial predators, people that are preying upon other people to continue on doing it. It perpetuates this. And um, there's this thing called Management Directive 110, which I'll probably never forget for as long as I live. I will link it below in the description here. And, um, you know, I read that and it was really eye-opening and I will give credit where credit is due. And I'm not trying to give a bunch of props, by the way, to U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of General Counsel Lawyers at all. Like, at all. Not at all. Because, I mean, there were... Th <laughs> Like, I was defamed by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Management, and it was perpetuated by the their Office of General Counsel. It, and, like, they just backed up those, those defamatory statements, and it's not okay. And, like, just because something's legal doesn't make it right. Right? Just because it's legal does not make it right. And there's a lack of morality in the law, and that, that's pretty messed up. Anyways, but the Office of General Counsel, the one that our lawyers had sent me a link as I was emailing back and forth with them in this case, just to the, the man telling me there was a management directive of 110 and then linking like or telling me it was online. And so I found it very quickly and I read it. I read a lot of it. <clears throat> and that's when I realized how messed up this whole EEOC process really was. And I realized there was such a lack of oversight just in general. It looked like, but specifically in my case, my case... So after like I quit my job in winter of 2015, the investigation from the um where's that? I'm trying to find it here. Basically the Office of Resolution Management. It um it concluded and it wasn't like I said, it wasn't anything legit. I mean, there were people lying in there and stuff, and like it was really obvious because they couldn't keep their lives straight and hadn't consulted with each other, certain members of management before they started lying under oath. But you know, there's no accountability for that at all. Like it's just unreal. And now because they got away with all this, I mean, that's the scary part. And like that's what scares me is being a veteran, being reliant upon the US Department of Veterans Affairs at all. And then like how big it keeps getting is just that they're getting better at getting away with illegal behavior at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs because, like, they're learning off of their mistakes. You know, they're going to learn, like, what they did wrong and how to do it better next time, like, how to cover up stuff next time. And, like, that's the reality of it, in my opinion. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to, I mean, practice makes perfect. So, um, yeah, I will be covering this topic in more videos. I mean, there's so much. I, I just have this box of documents, literally. I don't have it with me right this second. It's stored away. Um, and I have, I think I left it somewhere else, actually, in my hard drive. But, you know, I just have a hard drive, too. And it's got all these documents. And it's, like, just this box of documents I had, I had to store it away because it is like a box of pain and suffering is what it represents. And, you know, the judge didn't really care what I had to say in my little document about suffering, but yeah, pain and suffering and about um, corruption at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and about illegal behavior and about civil rights violations and about workplace harassment. And it's about, you know, it's about an organization that's quite corrupt. The organization that covers it up. And you know, what's worse than all the stuff that actually happened is the covering up of it and the, the legal battle that ensued and 
you know, dealing with the um, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs um, Office of Resolution Management, which I just mentioned, and then also dealing with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, because for years I held out hope um, as I moved on with my life and my career and did all the things that, you know, one day there would be justice. And one day I, I just had this hope. I had this hope that because I'm such a rule follower, that if I followed the rules and I did everything I was supposed to, that there would be some justice. And and there just wasn't. And, you know, less than two weeks before my hearing, I, you know, I, I dismissed my case. And some of you may be like, well, why? Or uh, whatever. And it's like, well, because I couldn't go through any more hell. That's why. I couldn't go through being forced to testify for three more hours after I'd already testified for almost nine hours years ago about this. I couldn't be forced to continue to have to talk about and basically relive these awful things that happened over and over and over and over again while these these people, these managers, get all their lawyers paid for and get defended like nothing happened and get to keep collecting their checks and their benefits and all the things. I just couldn't keep going through it anymore, you know, and I don't believe that my case was handled properly at all. You know, they let my case languish for years. A motion for summary judgment had been filed against my case in, um, in I think it was 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And it wasn't until 2020 the case was picked back up. It had been transferred that time from the first judge to the second judge to the third judge. The third judge made a decision about the motion for summary judgment. I partially overcame it, which means that some claims were um, upheld and then some were not. Um, it's kind of complicated to explain that. Basically, a motion for summary judgment is all about just getting um, dismissing a case, essentially, getting rid of a case. And I'm not aware, again, having been to law school, but that, that was what I learned from having represented myself. Anyway, so that was a really big deal. I was able to overcome it. And I felt a huge sense of accomplishment, and I always will, that I was able to do that without a lawyer. And I really want to go to law school now. But at the same time, like, I remember, like, you don't get a choice about when the case gets picked back up. And, you know, justice delayed is justice denied as the legal maxim goes. Justice delayed is justice denied as the legal maxim goes. And what I... What I mean by that is basically when a case like mine is basically allowed to languish for years and ignored for years and allowed to drag on and not promptly investigated and not quite frankly, I'm taking it seriously. Let's be real here. You know, it, it's denies justice. And so it's like what I go into this hearing. I relive these awful things I went through at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, I'm defamed horribly, I'm sure. I'm sure I've been defamed horribly, even though I had an impeccable employment record and all these, you know, I had outstanding, outstanding performance evaluations. It doesn't matter. You know, it's amazing I was able to survive that, survive the retaliation and get through that. But it doesn't matter. It's like all that matters is I, I opened my mouth and told the truth and VA management couldn't stand it. You know, this organization's management, Veterans Affairs Management, could not stand that I told the truth. And this is why there's a culture of fear inside of this organization. And people are so freaked out about telling the freaking truth. You know, there was an internal investigation, one of many that was done, but this one was a very honest one by like one of the only honest VA good managers out there, I suspect. I mean, it's amazing this person told the truth, given the fact that they pretty much took their whole life in their hands when they did that. And, and they did an honest investigation, which I'm not even getting into what prompted that. 
And um, they came out and part of this, the information that they typed up, which I still have a copy of, by the way, is that they found that, you know, basically people were afraid of um, retaliation and afraid to speak up because of that in, in when they were trying to investigate and ask questions. And they suggested immediate intervention basically in that department because of it and because they noticed there was a significant turnover. People were quitting their jobs. So anyways, um, yeah. Anyways, so all that, let's just go ahead and move on. Um, I really got talking about that stuff. And it will again in the future. It's just I'm going to one of these days read at least a part of my opening statement that I would have read at my hearing that I never chose to go to. Um, because I, I do, it needs to be out there. People need to know the EOC proceedings are very secretive. Like it's very private and filth breeds in darkness is my view. The victims need privacy. They do these people that are going into the EOC. Many of them have been horribly victimized inside of the federal agency workplaces, some of them, and they really need to be victim advocates and there really need to be victim rights. And, um, there needs to be compassion for these victims slash survivors of these workplace incidences that have occurred that have led them to try to take their cases to the EOC federal track. And I don't believe that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, should be allowed to continue to operate on the federal track in the way that it currently is. I think that the, the what like this the, everything needs to be revamped. And it's a very polarized, political, divisive, partisan, in my opinion, agency, despite the fact that I don't think it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like objective. But the um, presidents, each president, no matter what party they're from, are able to appoint appointees, is my understanding, to a certain part of the EOC. And then they make decisions which are very impactful upon people's lives about how things will go with regards to the federal um, workforce's ability to uh, enforce their civil rights with this agency. And um, I just don't see this agency as being one that is eradicating discrimination slash harassment slash retaliation um, or, or whatnot underneath the civil rights laws, but in fact, enabling it. Because, you know, my experience was at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs that these managers do not take it seriously. Um, the It's not taken seriously at all, the EEO laws and complaints process, because I now know they know they can get away with it. You know, and the victims will suffer and their lives will be destroyed in many cases. There are many people whose entire health was just ripped apart um, because of their civil rights being violated and being terrorized in the workplace. You know, the retaliation at Veterans Affairs is one of a kind. They're really great at it. For real. Super great. So, you know, like this just everything just needs to change with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And there's more like talking about this stuff but like if you don't terminate the employment of the people creating the problems then the problems will continue on and and that's just not happening like people are just getting away with a lot of stuff and it's a lot in management it's a lot and um and the civil service system is contributing to it and the union in my opinion is contributing factor to it and um, Merit System Protection Board has been a contributing factor to it, specifically with these managers. And um, things just really, really, really need to change. And so I, I part of me is like, oh, why bother? Like, you know, no one's going to listen to you. Like, no one cares. But at the same time, it's like, when I look at the things like VA Mission Act of um, 2018, when I look at the VA Mission Act of 2018, it gives me hope because people advocated for change were successful. 
when I look at the the Deborah Sampson Act, it gives me hope because people advocated for change and they were successful there too. And so I do have hope that <clears throat> it change can occur. I know that when I went public with my story all those years ago, it seemed that it improved the life of at least one person um, that was being subjected to this horrific harassment in their workplace. And um, I'm just going to leave it at that. And I am hopeful that by sharing my experiences and my thoughts in my real life, everyday struggles as a military veteran with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs ongoing now here in Louisiana, that um, that and in just, well, with the organization as a whole, because it's more than just the state that I'm visiting Louisiana. But I'm hopeful that it will elicit real meaningful change and improve the lives of military veterans and the people that support them. Um, and the people that support them, I'm including, are people at work at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs who are, in some cases, being terrorized at work. Okay. So I'm hoping that it can improve that as well. But things have to change. And and um, that's that. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So unfortunately as a military veteran, you know, it seems almost like a given that you're going to have to potentially file a congressional complaint, which is outrageous. Uh, my experience with congressional offices typically are not positive. Um, most of these congressional offices are either busy dodging their constituents or they're busy um, maybe being flooded by their constituents concerns that have elected them into office. I've experienced encountered both kinds of offices and there's a lack of just follow up and follow through. Now, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs doesn't really seem to take these congressional complaints slash inquiries very seriously. Historically, in my experience, and even experience of other people that I've heard, I've spoken with that have either worked the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs or are veterans themselves, and on the other side of that, receiving services from U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs are trying to. Anyways, and so um, this is U.S. Congressman Mike Johnson. Um, this is his office's privacy um, release. Let's see what they call it. Privacy. It's probably a good privacy release form. Um, and it's because of the Privacy Act of 1974. It's stated here what that says and what that is, blah, 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 whatever. Anyways, but this is a typical um, Privacy Act form that you're going to see when you file a congressional complaint slash inquiry about anything, essentially. And so, you know, this is the basic information. It's going to have like demographic information here, name, date, birth, your location, how they can get a hold of you. Um, they're going to ask, you know, like, what do you need, basically? Um, what is your desired outcome, signed date? Well, with me, I always need additional paperwork for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. This little form will not be sufficient. Those few lines, uh, no, not so much. So anyway, so as I covered in another video, which I will go ahead and link above my head, um, and there was another congressional complaint I had to file because the VA would not communicate with me and read my letter, okay, and file it away appropriately. You can just check out the video about that. So now I've decided... I'm going to have to file my second congressional complaint slash inquiry. And I don't think, quite frankly, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs will even take it seriously because why would they? I mean, they can operate with impunity. They can operate from with impunity, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, in my experience. It's like, why would they be concerned? Why would they care? It doesn't matter. But whatever the case, tomorrow is Friday. Today, um, I'm recording this. It's April 1st. Um, it's Thursday. And so tomorrow is Friday, um, tomorrow's Friday, and it will have been one week since I was notified by a, a VA scheduler um, that my 
medical referral was denied and um, no one from management has contacted me from the VA to let me to make amends and reverse the decision at all. And I have no reason at this point to believe that they will. And so I have had time to evaluate my options and all these different problems I continue to have with this organization and, um, and to go ahead and the decision I've made after talking with you, the Congressman Mike Johnson's office staff, I talked to a woman, she's also in the military, previously various lady, everyone in their office has been fantastic. But basically, um, I just decided to go ahead and file their congressional inquiry and I'm going to try to, I'm going to hand over information I have and basically try to get them to, um, force them hopefully to approve my medical referral so I can move forward. I've actually been trying to get the services I need from the U S department of veterans affairs for um, multiple months now. Actually, this isn't a new thing, but this medical referral denial is a new thing. And um, my primary care team that I see at the local clinic have been really great. Um, my primary care providers thus far have been really fantastic and the support staff, like, yeah. Um, that I've mostly interacted with have been fantastic as well. And the clinic is clean and everything's great. And so, you know, it's just, the VA has just made my life so hard and just been such a bane of my existence and my nemesis and continues to be. And so it was a higher level manager that denied this. And I think one other person maybe, and they'll operate with impunity because there's, I don't think there's any way to enforce these laws. Veterans Affairs Mission Act of 2018. And I don't think that, um, I don't know. I just, it's hard not to feel negative about it, honestly. So I'm not going to keep droning on and on. But anyways, but this is how typically you will, a person would file a congressional complaint slash inquiry. They will go to their congressional rep's office in their district where they vote. <clears throat> they will fill out the form to release privacy information. And then they will allow the rep's office to proceed. Hopefully you are actively participating in, you know, your voting process and getting good people in office with any luck and they're hope, going to help you hopefully because many of these people don't um these people have been really great and i feel very lucky to have had such great people um involved so we'll see what happens i if i'm a gambling woman i would say that most likely um the alexandria losing a veterans affairs medical center where this is currently happening and um that to be clear I did not work at the Alexandria, Louisiana Veterans Affairs Medical Center. I want to make that very clear. I never worked there. I'm just a military veteran trying to obtain uh, medical services via this region that I'm currently visiting. Okay. So anyways, um, yeah, I think that Alexandria, Louisiana Veterans Affairs Med Medical Center management will basically just apply somebody over there somehow either for them or on behalf of them are going to likely just put some legal ease in a letter and just blow me right on off. I think that's what they're going to do. And I think that if I'm a real gambling woman, they're probably going to say, they're going to ignore the provision of the law that I pointed out in my other video that I believe applies to my situation. And I know it does. Okay. I know it does. I know how to read. So Anyways, and I feel like they're probably going to get away with it, um, but I have escalated it, this issue, um, and I have now, I'm going to be filing this complaint through the congressional rep, 
And I am also obviously doing these videos to raise awareness about the plights of military veterans and the people that try to take care of them that work at the VA. And, um, you know, I think I have maybe one other option of how to enforce my legal rights here and get some medical, my medical needs met through the medical referral I was seeking, but I, I don't know. So we'll see. I'm going to just keep trying to figure this out. I wish there were more channels, honestly, being done by military veterans like myself, just showing like the reality of their daily life and like struggles with dealing with the DMVA and other issues maybe that they're experiencing and like, how did they hack it? How did they figure it out? And like, what did they do? It'd be really great if there were more veterans out there sharing information like this that were sharing their daily life and basically, you know, what it's like to be dealing with the VA and what's the, how do they overcome those struggles and how do they go around navigating these issues and also would raise awareness about the reality of dealing with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and being in the military community and being a military veteran and like, that's why I went on Combat Citizen, which no, I am not a combat veteran, but I went Combat Citizen his podcast um, hosted by Ryan Stan and shared um, my own story um, and information because I really like this. We need more voices. We need more voices out there. We need to be brave and courageous and to speak up and speak out because silence is the devil, which I know sounds super like wild, but like, I mean, it's kind of Southern silence is the devil. It really is. And filth breeds in darkness. It does. And, um, we need to shine light on this and continue to advocate for change so that military veterans and people trying to care for them are treated with the dignity and the respect that they deserve. And that's just the bottom line. Okay. All right. I wish y'all the best. Bye.